Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. We're running a monthly series called Food for Thought, in-depth conversations with groundbreakers who run restaurants, farms, bars, breweries, and wineries around California and are shaking up the way we eat and drink. For our first Food for Thought event of 2018, we're focusing on Sacramento chefs who have Michelin star skills and experience. While Sacramento calls itself the farm to fork capital, none of our restaurants are ever written up in a Michelin guide. We're not included in any of the four California regions that get a guide of their own. But that's okay, because we've got a few natives who've left town to work at Michelin-starred restaurants and are now coming back home with their top chef skills and creds and opening up their own places here. We're in the auditorium at the Clara Center for Performing Arts, and our guests are Brad Checky and Scott Ostrander, who are playing a big part in the Sacramento food renaissance. Listen in to hear them talk about all things food, their cooking philosophy, their favorite dishes and ingredients, their new restaurants, and whether Michelin and Sacramento should be in the same sentence. Hi, everyone. Welcome to California Groundbreakers. We're a civic engagement organization. We're focusing on innovators doing groundbreaking things around the state of California. And these are cocktail conversations to make kind of dry, maybe wonky topics more relevant and more relatable, excuse me, and we make them fun by wheeling out the cocktail cart, the charcuterie plate. And tonight is our first Food for Thought event of 2018. It's a monthly series. It's a look at the movers and shakers and groundbreakers in our farm-to-fork scene and uh, who's doing what in California food, drink, agriculture, and everything related to what we put in our in our mouth. So right now, tonight, we're looking at um, Sacramento chefs, and particularly a couple who uh, grew up here, left, went to work at some amazing restaurants, some with one, two, three Michelin stars, and then they came back. And they are opening up or have opened up recently their uh, first restaurants. And so the main theme is just to talk about their past, present, and culinary future. I don't introduce the panelists, I let them introduce themselves because obviously they know themselves best. So I'm gonna start with a gentleman on my right and go down the row and just your name obviously. A brief intro about where you've worked and what you're doing now, briefly, because obviously we have more questions about that. And I always like to ask a personal question so we know a little bit about you. I haven't eaten all day. I've obviously been working on this event, so I'm really hungry. So I always like to get uh, from chefs, when you're hungry, you're at home, what do you pull in the pantry? What do you whip up? What's a really good meal? So I know what to stock my pantry with next time. So let's start with you. Uh, well, I think uh, scrambled eggs and toast. And <laughs> okay. It's so easy to make, and I always have a nonstick Teflon pan on the stove. And who are you? I'm Scott, Scott Ostrander. <laughs> And I love toast and eggs. <laughs> well, uh, any herbs, any cheese, any? Oh, of course. Anything I got. Um, I always have, you know, a big rind of Parmesan or Asiago or something like that. So that's, you know, microplaned on and melts pretty much as you put it on the plate. And I always have garlic butter or, you know, an infused aromatic butter in there. I, I pretty make a bunch of crap so it's in the fridge. All right. And then obviously, Scott, I will ask you more about yourself. Next question. So Brad. Brad. Yeah. Um, I'm Brad Checky. Uh, as far as what's in my fridge, it's probably like chips and salsa or 
I don't know, something sweet usually, especially late, get home from work late, um, got to dive into something. Um, but yeah, uh, worked all over town and then have left and come back. So it's, it's good to be home. So I'm going to start with you, Brad, uh, with like the kind of the, the bio here about how you got your start uh, in the culinary scene when you decided to work in the kitchen and then I guess just how you progressed to where you went to a restaurant, Soul Bar, that had one Michelin star, and you earned it another Michelin star as executive chef. So I wanted to get from here going to there, how that journey progressed. Yeah, so um, I, I got my start early. I was 15, and my parents said I needed to get a job, so I got one. Um, I opened the Embassy Suites in Old Sacramento. It was my first uh, restaurant job. And um, started as a dishwasher, and someone called in sick, and next thing I know, I'm working the pizza oven. Um, but I wasn't there very, very long, so I, I, uh, I had some great opportunities to get some jobs outside of Sacramento right after that. So I moved to Colorado and got an apprenticeship at the um, Broadmoor in Colorado Springs. It's a big, fancy hotel. Um, and Is that the one in The Shining? It is. It I is thought the one so. In the that Shining. sounded familiar. I just yeah, had to ask. Yeah, it is the one in The Shining. It's terrifying. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I was there. I had an apprenticeship there for a year and then um, shot back here, got a job working in it uh, for an old company called Ashada Class. It used to be in the old Pyramid Brewing Company building over there on K Street. Um, so I was there for a little while and then um, I was dating my current wife at the time. Not that I've had any other wives, just the one. Um, we were dating, we were young, uh, and she broke my heart, broke up with me. And so I was like, I gotta get out of here. So I moved to New York, um, went to the Culinary Institute of America. Um, and then, you know, kind of did some stages in New York City for a little while, and then moved back here um, in 2006 to open up um, Mulvaney's. So uh, I worked in the, in the daytime there, and. Bounced around and ended up at the Citizen in 2008 and was there for six years and um, and then moved, yeah, moved on to Cleveland and opened up a big hotel and restaurant there and uh, was happily recruited out of Cleveland uh, <laughs> to um, for a great opportunity to a, to a Michelin star restaurant in the Napa Valley. Everybody okay? All right. <laughs> I had the <laughs> I had the same fear. Um, and so yeah, so that's that that's it. You know, I, I spent some time at Soul Bar and uh, two years, um, first year as, as chef de cuisine, and and then the second year as executive chef, where we were able to maintain a Michelin star um, both those years. Um, so yeah, it was it was uh, been quite the journey, and now back at Cannon and. Things are going well. And Scott, uh, same for you. You grew up here. You got an early start. You left. Talk about that until you came back to Sacramento. Um, yeah, I grew up four blocks from here. And I used to play in this schoolyard when I was a kid, skateboard and do crazy things. Um, but yeah, I started uh, at Cafe Bernardo's Midtown, uh, probably year 2000. And uh, I was a waiter, and I just asked the cooks, you know, could I start making my own pizzas? Because 
I didn't want what was on the menu. Like, let me throw a little this on, a little that on. And they were like, yeah, cool. And then this guy quit in the middle of a Friday night rush. And back in 2000, Bernardo's was like really busy. And uh, yeah, I started tossing pieces for him. And then went from there. Um, I didn't take it super seriously. It was a job, you know, it was kind of one of those things. But I loved what I did. Uh, and I took pride in what I did. And I worked with some really cool people at that time, like Ian McBride, uh, the chef at Luca. Uh, was one of my first, you know, buddies on the grill, and Jason Boggs that owns uh, Shady Lady and, you know, all those other places uh, was there, and some really cool people came through there, um, and they pushed me to be, you know, better, which was great because I needed that because I didn't, you know, I didn't have any like heroes in cooking at that age, that time at 18, um, but then, uh, you know, life as it does gets serious and kind of got to do things a little differently. And uh, I, I went on to open some friends' places. So I opened the Golden Bear uh, with their little food program with the pizza oven and an electric stovetop that was actually from my house. I never got it back, and I don't know what happened to it. Um, <laughs> so that opened, and uh, I spent some time you know, at Inc. when it first opened. Um, I always worked two jobs. Uh, just because it was that way. Um, Perigaris, I did a stint there for a while as a sous chef. And then I went and ran R15 for almost four years. And then uh, Restaurant 13 with Adam Peckle uh, in the Sterling. That was kind of a, a crazy situation because it was really like f trying to be fine dining uh, in Sacramento downtown for like, you know, governors and senators and all that kind of stuff. Um, so we were able to do cool stuff. And that was kind of where I got my um, appreciation for what other chefs in the country and the world were doing, uh, more so than just Sacramento and San Francisco. Um, and I was there for uh, as long as I could be there, I would say. And then uh, Red Rapid uh, was after that, Red Rapid Bar and Grill, or Kitchen Bar, and um, spent some time there. Uh, that was a fun experience, but it soon proved that uh, cooking that style of food, I mean, was there more in, in uh, Sacramento and there, for me there wasn't too many employment options like you couldn't you know go to I don't know was Grange open at that time 2008, 2008. yeah it might have been open at that time but, but there was no positions you know like the kitchen didn't have like a job available you know and, and Ella didn't have jobs available at least not in the mid-range so it was like you gotta go do something else so I got kind of crazy and, and like him you know I broke up with somebody in my life at that point that uh, you know was soul-crushing and uh, I sold the house that we had, and uh, I decided I wanted to go somewhere like way outside my comfort zone. I was gonna go to Europe. I was gonna backpack in Europe. I was gonna stage. Great plan, great plan. <laughs> Didn't end up coming to fruition because I, I being trying to forward think, I was like, yeah, I need to find a job in, in uh, the US when I get back. Like if you go, you know, learn all these things, you gotta, you gotta go somewhere. So I put out applications to I don't know, you know, Love Madison Park, Momofuku, like all these places, Alinea. So Alinea like emailed me back like an hour later. And we should mention for those of you who don't know, Alinea, it's Chicago. It's one of the few three-star Michelin restaurants in the U.S. Um, at the time. At the time. I think now there's, last I saw, 14. Yeah, there's San Francisco, is, San Francisco has seven of them. Chicago is two. And Alinea is one. And it seems like to me, from whenever I read about Alinea, the thing was that molecular gastronomy, where food mm -hmm. is turned into gel and crystal and foam. And uh, so it seemed like that was, when you got a call back from Alinea, that seemed like a big deal, I'm assuming? It was a holy crap moment, you know? <laughs> um, 
It's like uh, I, I, the owner of Red Rabbit, one of the owners, John Bays and, and Sonny Mayuba, like we sat down for a minute and I was like, uh, so I, first I, I need to know if I can have like a week off to go do this because they're requesting I come out for a week. And they were like, yeah, sure, like not a problem, okay. Can I borrow money to fly out there? Is that cool? And they were like, uh, I guess so. So John helped me out with that one. Um, and I flew out there, it's a great experience. We, uh, we actually fed Thomas Keller when I was there. Um, which was a cool experience because French laundry. Yeah, he was. You know, it was like, oh hey, we're only feeding this guy tonight. You know, and you're like, all right. Um, but yeah, it was it was a grueling stage, uh, 18 hours I think a day, and I got sent home early because I was a stage. Um, what is that? Uh, stage is just a stagiaire. It's just somebody that's basically trying out. Uh, oh okay. It, it, our term of it is trying out, but in like French French Michelin. term, it's it's basically somebody that's you know trying to get a, a job. Stage. There. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I was there, uh, got the job, moved out there. Coincidentally, was selling my house at the same time, so it worked out like perfectly to a T. I uh, was out there for you know uh, a while, and it got cold. And I'm a I'm a California kid, you know, um, and I know he knows Ohio cold. It is cold, like face like hurts cold, and I'm not into that at all. And I live right by Lake Michigan, um, so I, I you know I came back. A lot of factors brought me back. Um, and yeah, I, I, I got back to Sacramento. All right, so this question's for both of you. Uh, what's it like? So we hear so much about Michelin star restaurants, and uh, it doesn't cover every restaurant in the world. There's certain uh, areas that it covers and not all. I don't think it covers Los Angeles anymore, but obviously there's certain... Used to. It used to, yes. And uh, now it covers Washington, D.C., Chicago, New York, San Francisco, and Napa. That's it. Napa yeah, and the, wine the, the wine country is included in the San Francisco. Country. So obviously they have certain criteria. So for you, when you worked at Michelin star restaurants, both of you, what were what was different about working, if anything, in a Michelin star kitchen? What were the what was noticeably different than compared to fine dining in other restaurants? Brad, I think the the biggest difference is um, it's every day, it's every minute, it's a it's every day. Because you you don't know who you're feeding, you don't know why they're there, um, and that Michelin star means millions of dollars. It means millions of dollars in revenue that people are coming to your restaurant to eat there because you have this recommendation from a tra and don't forget it's a travel guide. It's not it's not a food critic. It's a travel guide by a tire company. By a tire company, exactly. And, and so you don't know, you never know. And what that means, that, that kind of accountability from your guests and that kind of accountability from um, the people that are dining in your restaurant all the time, um, is it's, it's a heavy weight to bear. I mean, it, at Soul Bar, we served breakfast, lunch, and dinner 365 days a week, or 365 days a year. And so it that to, to carry that means there's accountability at every turn. Something goes wrong, if, if a chive isn't right, and it goes out to, it could go out to an Michelin inspector, you don't know. And so, because they're so elusive that, that everything has to be right, that accountability has to be there all the time. And so it's exhausting. When Scott says he works an 18 hour day, it's 18 hours under pressure. It's not like, there's no lunch break associated with that. Um, it's, it's, it's exhausting. 
Scott, what about you at Alineo? What was your experience like? Um, every bit of what he just said. Um, we were only open uh, Wednesday through Sunday. Uh, accountability, we could talk about that for hours, let me tell you. Um, you know, we would get a lunch break in there, and we'd have family meal with the front and the back of the house all together. Uh, we knew, I think it's a, a little bit different, um, and it's not saying like one star or two stars or three stars, just the way that three stars, I think, holds themselves accountable is they do know every single person that's coming in there. They know every single dietary restriction that you may have. They know, you know, if you're allergic to garlic, then, you know, they know every allium, like they take it off the menu, completely retailer a, a, a menu item, a ingredient, or a, entire courses. Um, so it's kind of, they know how many visits you've been there, what you had last time, who was your server, like they know it all. And we go over that like in advance the day before and you take notes on all this so that when you come in in the morning, you know exactly what you're doing. And it's grueling. And any time for personal life. Ha! Huh. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely, uh, it's gotta be your first thing. I mean, and, and I have a wife and a new baby and all of these things, and I don't work in a Michelin star restaurant anymore. Um, but, like, it, it does, it, it, because it's your job. And, there, and, and not to say that whoever your employer is with that, that is holding you to that is wrong. There are people that want that. And, you know, the, if you choose to work in that environment, you have to choose that life. And, um, you know, it's... It's given me a restaurant, you know, wholeheartedly. I mean, I, I don't think that I would have Canon had it not been for my time at Soul Bar. Um, so it, it, there, there's work to put in, and, it, and it, it definitely, you know, helps you in the long run. And I had a question, I guess, your holy shit moment when you got your the second star at Soul Bar. Um, did you go for it? Did you purposely say, all right, let's go for a second star? Did you, did you no, do anything so different? We didn't, we didn't get a second star. So we, we were able to get one Michelin star again for the eighth year in again. a row. Again, okay. So yeah, and so we didn't get a, um, a second star. Okay. Um, and and at, that, at Soul Bar, it, that's, that's the standard. I mean, they lost their star this year, but... That's that was the standard. I mean, it was legitimately like the third Wednesday in October. I'm up at 4 a.m. waiting because if it doesn't happen, like I got to look for a new job no, for real, like legitimately, like my I don't have a job anymore. And and so um, it, it definitely is is something that my wife and I had to talk about and say, like, we have to. Uh, we have to mise en place this moment um, to find out if, if you know, if, if things go the right way. Then, and luckily, like I, when we got the star in, at uh, Soul Bar in 2017, I already had Canon happening, and so um, I knew I wasn't going to be without work for very long. But um, you know, it, it's definitely something that you have to consider. And as Chef de Cuisine in 2016, it was gonna fall on me as well. I mean, it was gonna be one of those moments where Brandon Sharp had had five in a row, and, or six in a row, and I, if I was the new thing, I was the, the difference maker in that situation, so if it didn't happen, then it was gonna fall on my shoulders and I was gonna lose a really good paying job. And it, it, that pressure was there the whole time. So when you saw you got the star, it was just, 
Oh, it's 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 fireworks and champagne and the whole deal. I mean, it's it's a relief. It is an utter relief to get that call. I mean, you wait by the phone. If you you, you see an unknown number call come across your caller ID, and there's someone with a French accent saying congratulations on the other line. It's literally like every tension in the room goes away, and um, and you know you you find the most expensive bottle of champagne you can find it at. And, and then in my experience, in the two years that I was in that environment and experienced it, um, it was always the worst service. Always had the worst service the night that the we, we heard that we kept our star because everybody was relieved. And there was a little bit of like, no one's going to be here tonight kind of like <laughs> mentality. And, and, and ended up, you know, then day two you come back with like, you know, the the mentality of like, we, we got to keep this going. But yeah, it's, it's a relief for sure. That's so interesting because it's, it seems like relief. You want to celebrate, but then you're relieved. And, and I've been reading stories recently about chefs that want to give back a Michelin star. It's so much pressure. And then I guess there were a couple of high profile suicides a few years ago in New York of chefs, maybe in, in France, but they lost a star and uh, they took their life, at least one chef, maybe two. So it just seems like you really have to have a certain, I don't know, uh, iron cast gut and mind for, for doing this, especially for long term if you're going, if you want to go for Michelin star and let alone keep Michelin stars. Is that what you saw from the people that you worked with, your higher ups at these restaurants? I mean, personality wise, was it a distinct... Yeah, I mean, like I said, there's billions of dollars at stake. I mean, at, at every level, and and so if you lose that, then then it matters. Um, and and if you're you know the owner of said place, like you know that's your livelihood on the line. That's that's your money in that building. That's your money in that equipment. That staff, the ability to recruit staff, all of that stuff matters when um, you're looking at at what you have going. Um, and, and, you know, I've never been suicidal. I'm sure you haven't either. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it definitely, you know, matters. Like I said, you know, my wife and I having to talk about what would happen if that didn't happen. And you, you put out the best product you can. And, and to be honest with you, you're, you're putting your art out there to be judged by something that is totally subjective. So you both, oh, I'm sorry, Scott, did you? No, I was just moving my arm. <laughs> okay. So this question is for both of you, and I, I'll start with you, Scott. You both, obviously, you went to freezing cold places. You came back to California, but you came back to Sacramento. And uh, Brad, you opened up Canon, obviously. Scott, you're going to open up a restaurant. So um, I guess my question is, why did you decide to come back to Sacramento? And what did you decide when you're here what you wanted to do with the skills that you learned at other places? So start, Scott, start. Um, I actually went to Yountville when I got back. Um, Where at? Uh, Hotel Bartisono. They had a, a restaurant in there called Lucy and a chef by the name of Victor Scargle. Uh, he was going to make it here tonight, but I don't think he made it. But um, I went there and the kitchen was designed, you know, by the guy that designed the previous version of the French laundry just got remodeled. But um, so it was very serious. And, you know, it's just like Soul Bar. You know, you got to keep everything up. You got tourism. It's heavy. It's crazy. And uh, 
yeah, that, that was my whole reason was like, you know, the Michelin star thing, like I still kind of had that bug. Like I want to, you know, still be in that environment. I still want to work with that level of cuisine, that level of service, um, the quality, you know, kind of thing. Sacramento didn't have that. And in my mind, it, you know, it's still struggling to get there on a consistent basis. And uh, I think, you know, Canon is a good example of, of a fresh opening that has a lot of that in mind. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what brought me there. And then Sacramento, I came back uh, strictly because you don't make a lot of money if you're not running kitchens. So it was like, okay, well, I've ran kitchens before I even went down this journey. So time to put those skills to running kitchens and go back to that kind of lifestyle. So Perigary's was, was next? Uh, Esquire Grill. Esquire yeah. Grill. Yeah. And then Winters. You went to Winters. Uh, Esquire Grill and then Perigary's remodel and then, yeah, Park Winters. And that seemed interesting. That's where I first read about you because Park Winters was... Uh, I guess a B and B, or they wanted to up mm -hmm. their game, and uh, it seemed distinct because they grow, you grow nearly everything yeah, on yeah. the farm or within Yellow County. Yeah, so they what, does were that? Kinda, yeah, yeah, was that a unique thing for you? It, it was. It was. It was definitely an opportunity. And in retrospect, I think of it differently than I did when I signed on to do it. Um, I'm not gonna throw anybody in the shade, but it's definitely not what I signed on for. <laughs> when I when I'm pulling uh, weeds at 5 a.m. by myself, and and you know I, I needed like a, a farm manager and stuff like that, like all of these things, it just became, you know, grueling to a point where it's like you can't be uber passionate about what you're doing, you know, in terms of like how you accomplish things, you know, how your morale with your crew. Like, man, my crew was out there. We planted that farm, that whole entire thing. It was two acres. You know, so it was kind of like that that love for what we did is great. But to be able to maintain that and Brad knows like when you're running a kitchen that you have to maintain something, if you don't have the support to do it, it's an uphill battle like pushing a boulder. And that's kind of where that went. And I decided if I'm going to push boulders, it better be on my own dime, on my own self. So, yeah. All right. So, so restaurants, I guess this is for both of you the first well, I'm not sure, Brad. Do you own co-owned Canon? Uh, yeah, yeah, Clay and I are equal partners. Clay, Clay yeah. partners. So, so the question for you is, what brought you back to Sacramento and and the decision to for Canon? Uh, I guess the decision to uh, start a restaurant. What type of restaurant? What went into uh, creating Canon? So, like, yeah, like Scott said, um, I I left Sacramento because of lack of opportunity. I was at a point at Grange where, you know, Oliver very accomplished uh, Michael Tui before him very accomplished um, and I was not getting that job I wasn't getting the job at Ella I wasn't getting the job at the kitchen they were all very stable situations and and those were probably at the time in 2012 when I left the the places that I could make the money that I was used to making um, and uh, and have the prestige that I, I wanted so I had to leave um, and I f probably would not have come back when I did had not been for the opportunity to own, own my own restaurant. Um, but what Sacramento brings to the table, um, we have this farm to fork thing going on. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. Um, <laughs> it's real. It is a real thing. Um, and, uh, that ability coupled with the community, coupled with a sense of home. I, I, I was told when I was getting ready to leave Soul Bar and they would ask me, why are you going back to Sacramento? Um, I, I just felt like I was the best version of myself here 
Um, you know, like the shortcut down the alley that I take when I'm driving home from work, like stuff like that. But like that stuff matters, right? Like, and I feel like I was able to, to be the best version of me, um, just to be able to, you know, run into people I know at the grocery store, like things like that. I'm from here. I'm, I'm born and raised. And so, um, what I wanted to bring to Sacramento was uh, a version of a restaurant that wasn't like anything else that was here. I think that there is, um, you know, we all kind of stand on the shoulders of the giants before us and, and people like, you know, Kurt Spataro and Rick Mahan and Mulvaney and Randall. And, you know, those, those guys have all had big names in this town for a long time. And, you know, I think that we stand on their shoulders. We've all worked for them, um, in one, one way, shape or form, but I don't want to do that food. They all, they have this version of, of, Northern Californian kind of American Mediterranean cuisine that they do very well. Um, that's not what we do at Canon. And so um, coupling that technique with, with the standards that I've learned from the service industry and just preparation and administrative accountability and things like that, running businesses, um, I thought that we could be successful. And so far, so good. And Scott, you are, I guess you had the plans already laid up in construction about to start on your new restaurant your started first today so, congratulations yeah. so this is your Stoked. first yeah yeah super stoked so what is it what kind of food when do you expect it to open all that let's let's go with may 1st right now let's go with oh, that. wow that's quick yeah it's it's even then it's you know i think uh maybe september october no 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 i i was saying that six months ago um <laughs> I think I think we're gonna you know hit that hard target. Uh, it's uh, kind of an Asian fusion cuisine from all different areas of uh, Asia, from you know Thailand to Vietnam to Japanese to Chinese cuisine. It's a little bit of everything, and the emphasis is really on farm to fork. And it's how can we purchase larger quantities of ingredients from our local farmers and get it into the mouths of citizens of Sacramento. You, right now, I mean, you go to like Perigary's or you go to Ella. Everybody can't do that all the time. So for us, the business model is to do it on a lower price point uh, and a higher volume so we can still purchase in bulk and still do that. So it's designed like a Chipotle um, where you know, we have these different vessels of cuisine you know, from rice bowls and banh mi's and salads and leafy greens and noodle salads and ramens and things like that. But you can build it when you come in. You can look at the menu board and you can say, well, they've got bok choy from uh, Del Rio, or they've got arugula from River Dog Farms, and I do want that in my salad. So, boom, there you go. And we'll get you out the door in like four to five minutes, or you can hang out. And it's origami? That's or, the movie. Origami Asian Grill. In East Sacramento. East Sacramento, 48th and Folsom. And what, I guess, your experience with Asian food, eating it, cooking it, like what inspired you to like, okay, Asian food and all the uh, ingredients? It's a good question. Um, Kurt Spataro and I actually have a pretty good affinity for Asian food, and uh, and who's Kurt Spataro? Uh, for those who don't, Paragaris, yeah, you know, uh, spearheads that whole organization. But um, you know, we cook ramen ourselves, just me and him, and that's where I grew my affinity for it. And I haven't really been happy with the ramen that's in Sacramento. I mean, it's good ramen. I mean, I'm not like throwing shade on anybody, but it, when I think of how I would do it, I would do it differently. And I think to his point, you know, these guys that have been doing this stuff for years, we would do it differently. We, whatever it is, like the standard, the quality, whatever the design, we would do it differently. And so uh, my business partner is Paul. Um, 
he also worked at a restaurant at Meadowood, a three Michelin star restaurant. Him and I were like, well, when we get off work, where do we want to go? You know, at you know, midnight, 1 a.m. It's like, we want to get ramen, but what if we just made it ourselves? We just had a place like we could cook at. And that was the impetus behind it. It was, let's just create a place that we can cook at and let's offer that to everybody else. You know, so that was it. All right, so I think uh, anyone who has questions, if you want to start lining up at the mic, uh, and I've got a few more, but I definitely want to hear what everybody else has to say and what good questions you have. Um, I think one question I want to ask uh, is, before we get to the audience, Mike, is um, there's uh, a lot of focus on Me Too in media, right? Um, all these industries, and it has uh, shown up in the fine dining. Uh, Mario Batali, I think, is a very famous chef who uh, got uh, sexual harassment. Michael Chiarello, anybody? Who's who's that? Michael Chiarello out of uh, Yountville, Napa. Yountville, okay. And I think there's another one from Oakland, actually, written name names. Uh, Charlie Hallowell. Um, so, oh yes, the the guy in Oakland, or not Oakland, I'm sorry, New Orleans. Uh, Ken Friedman in New York with a spotted pig. So a lot of big names, big restaurants. And then there, I guess alongside that, I mean, this has been a topic for for a, a while is women working in the kitchen. I mean, obviously, uh, most of most the majority of top chefs are men. So women finding a, a place in the kitchen, especially the top, um, what's your take on why women have such a hard time getting there? And how can that be improved? How can that change? What's your take on that? Who wants to start? Scott. Um, I, I guess I'll go ahead. My first chef for eight years was a lady named Shannon Berg at Bernardo's Midtown. And, you know, like, I can't thank that woman enough for helping me out in my career, just on little things, you know? Um, and she was great. And she set an example, uh, I think, on, a, on a, just a, uh, how to conduct yourself, you know, how to be a woman. Like, you know, she told me the struggles. Like, we'd sit there closing down a line, and she'd tell me the good old days, you know, like the 80s and the 90s. It just was intense. And I, would, I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. So, you know, it's, it's, it's good that, like, you know, we're starting to address this a little bit more aggressively, which it should have been a while ago. But uh, every woman that I've ever worked with in a kitchen has been a complete badass. I expect no less, you know. So it's, it's, it's good that they're getting recognition. It's good that they're taking risks and opportunities. They're putting themselves out there, and I expect great things. Do you have any, will you be hiring any for your kitchen? Do you have any on staff right now? I mean, if they come my way. Uh, the, at Park Winters, I had this little girl, Lisa Riccio, um, fiery little girl, crazy. She's uh, at Two Star Acarello in San Francisco. You know, we hooked her up and got her in there. Um, so yeah, she's gonna do big things. Brad? Um, yeah, I mean, my chef's cuisine is a woman, Jody Chavez, and she's, her and I have worked together for, uh, for a long time. I mean, um, we started at Mulvaney's together in 2006 and have worked at four restaurants together since. Um, I think that she, uh, she's a force. I mean, she, she speaks her mind and she, you know, doesn't get run over by anybody. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, with regards to opening that opportunity for women in the kitchen, I think that um, it's a strong, it, there's a strong mental fortitude that has to happen in any kitchen. Um, and, you know, I think that um, 
you know, with regards to kind of uh, why there's no opportunities for women chefs, I think that they're they're just not given the right chance. Um, they're not given the opportunity to show what they have, um, and and that changes. I mean, that's changing at Canon when Jody is is extremely powerful, and 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 but it, those environments are 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 high stress, um, you know, volatile environments that that you know you have to want that, and so it's, I think that's available to to anybody. All right, let's take the first question at the mic. All right, thank you, chefs. Um, this goes for either of you who'd like to answer. Um, as someone who's worked in restaurants for a long time and is now I'm more on the growing side and the farming side, um, I'm curious about how, what opportunities you've seen for local farmers. And I mean, within Sacramento, I think sometimes the farm to fork kind of gets distorted a little bit and takes away from being local. And so the farms are often from like Cape Valley or out on the coast. But how do we get local produce grown within Sacramento and Sacramento County into restaurants? Not just even from farmers, but even just from local growers, you know, edible landscaping, whatever it might be. Have you come across any unique avenues or would you like to see different avenues outside of farmers markets? Scott. Yeah, I don't know. That's a that's an interesting question because um, I think we need better avenues, better restaurants for farmers to produce more and get it to the public. Um, we got a lot of chain restaurants in this town. That's a big problem. Um, and I think creating better restaurants will help do that. Um, our farmers markets are great. They could be better. Uh, Sunday probably being the best one under the freeway, but I think those could improve too. Um, th 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 there's a lot to that question, honestly. And maybe you can elaborate a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think distribution's an issue. Um, I know for us, uh, we have storage concerns at Cannon. Um, I have, I, I need produce every day. We're busy. We're, we're a really busy restaurant and I fill and empty my walk-in every day. And so if that's the case, I have to have distribution that can, can accommodate that. Um, we don't have a big walk-in or a big restaurant and we go through it all. So if, if a farmer can't, um, you know, I try to buy as much as I can in bulk, as much as I can. I have you know, five cases of broccoli to Chico in my walk-in right now, but I go through three a day. So if if somebody can't provide that, then it, it makes the places like Cape or River Dog or you know those those farmers, which who do things the right way, but they're you know they're not in Sacramento. That makes them a real viable option for me, because um, we all hope to be busy. That's the thing. Scott hopes to be really busy, and so. Um, and, and, and I hope to stay really busy. And so I need to have that avenue of distribution that, that can fill, fill and empty my walk-in every day. All right, next question. Hey, thanks everybody for being here. So I had the fortune of being uh, raised in Sacramento and I feel like Sacramento has grown up around me a lot. One of the things I always heard or always ended up saying, and I think a lot of people here can relate to it, one of the greatest things about Sacramento is it's close to Lake Tahoe, close to San Francisco. <laughs> thanks to things like Lady Bird, thanks to the Farms of Fork Move and the great work that you guys are doing. Uh, Sacramento has now got a lot to you know, uh, be proud of and to have people come in here to experience. I was wondering, What's the one food, what's the one meal in Sacramento that you have to tell people that, hey, just like you go to New York for pizza, go to Chicago for a hot dog, you go to Sacramento for the blank. 
I've been struggling with that because there's a lot here and it's a big question, but I was wondering if I could get a little help on how to answer that question for my friends. And I would say, actually, the New York Times, this is cocktails, but I read that the New York Times, they were looking at l local cocktails that have a following in, uh, I don't know if you saw this, but Shady Lady uh, uh, the, and the White Linen. So we do have our cocktail, the White Linen, and they reference Shady Lady. But yes, food. What, uh, what would you both say? Scott, I'm, try I'm, that. I mean, I got like places I like to eat and cuisine, and I've probably been eating the same food for 15 years at these places. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's, that's a, that's a tough question. Damn. What about you? Well, I, I can tell you, uh, unequivocally that if, uh, there was one place that I would send somebody who wasn't, who was from the other side of the country and in, in Sacramento is not, um, it's not the home, but Jim Boy's Tacos is really, <laughs> really good. I'll spend some time there. And uh, it, you, they, you, it's not, you know, not born and bred in Sacramento, but there definitely is more of them here than anywhere else. And, it's NorCal and, grown for sure. And I will uh, I, I'd agree uh, send that. somebody there in a heartbeat. I, do, I, I actually, I think there was, I, we had a, a food for thought, our number two, uh, Chris Josh from Broderick's Roadhouse and Garrett Van Black from Shady Lady in the White Linen. And I asked them, you know, what they love to eat, what they love about Sacramento. Both said gym boys, without a doubt. Oh, it's 100% like on my death row. Uh, yeah, awesome. for sure. I'm probably going there after. Thanks for being real. And after Thank party you. at gym boys. <laughs> All right, next question. Uh, Eden and chefs, um, in your opinion, what separates a typical line chef from an actual chef? Like just some guy up the street looking to get some experience, per se, between like one of you two. And, and moves up from a line chef to a top chef? Yes, ma'am. Brad? Um, I, I, we could talk about this all day. Um, but there's, there's a few things, right? We can all cook. That's the fact of the matter is, is if you're a good line cook, you can cook. If you're one of us, you have to be able to cook. Um, for me, the the difference that made me switch from being a line cook to a chef is the administrative ability to get the others that do the work to do the work. Recipes have to be written accordingly. Prep lists have to be written appropriately. You have to manage your business the right way and so that you're making money and so that the place stays open. Um, you know, I think that being a good line cook is the price of admission to being a chef. Being a good chef is leaps and bounds more than being able to be a good cook. Yeah, I think you have to be able to, one, be a teacher and be able to teach people effectively so they can reproduce your product every time, all the time. Um, and even take, a, take it away, you know, five years from now, they still know how to make that dish, you know. Um, but also the business aspect of it is huge. You need to be able to, you know, cost out your ingredients and be able to project and order and inventory and charge appropriately to guests and make it attractive at the same time. I mean, it's, there's, we could talk about that all day. Right on. Thank you. And I, I had a follow-up question to that because I did try to get um, students from American River College. They have a culinary program. There is a Sacramento... Uh, our Institute of California in Sacramento, they have a culinary program. We couldn't do it, I guess, because of higher ed and, and, and labor laws. But uh, I know ARC, 
I think, Brad, you, I you, teach, there, you yeah. teach there. Mm -hmm. Guy Fieri, for those who didn't know, I just found out from uh, the Food Network, the diners and drive-in, graduated from there. Um, so we have programs, but you two seem to come up you didn't do culinary school. You came up through the ranks, so to speak. You didn't go to culinary school? No, I, I did. Did yeah, you? I'm, okay. I'm both an ARC graduate and a culinary institute. Okay. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. I got, I got a sweet pair of associate's degrees hanging on my wall. <laughs> All right. So I guess I was wondering, I guess, um, I read so much about, you know, culinary school. It's expensive. Is it worth it? I mean, what's your view of... Um, of going to culinary school, uh, the the talent that comes from it, hiring from it, like you know, pros and cons, I guess, of going to a culinary school rather than starting uh, on the line or or mixing it up. What do you well, think? Well, I mean, whatever you know, his education cost at ARC, I probably spent that on cookbooks, guaranteed. Um, it's kind of ridiculous, and uh, I think in Sacramento with like ARC uh, students, uh, I think. If they're able to help place them in good kitchens, they succeed very well. If they go out to somewhere that just doesn't have the right chef, they can lose interest, um, just not find it desirable, and it kind of like phase out. Um, it's funny that when you're saying that question, I was like, oh great, I know what I can talk about. But at Alinea, we had Hyde Park CIA students come in that were 19, 20, 21 years old. And these kids were like crazy. They lived and breathed this stuff. They've seen every documentary, they've seen they read every book, it's like they worship these people, you know, and they're into it, and they're they're going to succeed. They're going to be running Michelin star kitchens five, ten years from now. You know, they're starting out young. Brad. Um, so I I teach at American River. I so last year I taught there because I was waiting for Canada Open. This year I'm teaching there because I need staff. Hundred <laughs> percent. And I make sure that they all know that going into it. You all are auditioning for a job. Um, but, you know, but, and I have a different opinion of Hyde Park than Scott does. Because um, I went there. And it, it, in my opinion, the, the opportunities that have been awarded to me in life, um, are they because I spent $70,000 on my education? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think that there's a little bit of merit on the hard work that I put in. Now, there may there may be one. There's a butterfly effect to this whole deal, and and maybe maybe I did um, get an opportunity because of my degree from there. Um, I don't know. Um, but in my experience, there there was, you know, of the of the select few that get a job at Alinea. There's three thousand kids people going to school at any time at, at the CIA. Let me say that these kids didn't have jobs. They were doing their externships. Right. They were exter externing, exactly. Free labor. And and um, and those those students make it. Um, there's a vast majority of them that go do their externships at Disneyland. And they're, you know, like anywhere, um, the ratio is the same. I'm looking for the one student in my class of 30 at American River that's gonna um, be the next chef of a Michelin-starred restaurant. Um, I graduated with uh, with a girl that was the executive sous chef at Meadowood when they got their third star. Um, and so she's a total badass. Um, and so that being said, of the ratio of students that um, 
that go through any program, one out of 30 are probably going to make it. Um, there, there's a certain, like I said earlier, there's a certain amount of work ethic that has to happen. And, um, and culinary school doesn't teach you that. That is ingrained, I think, in the person. Um, but at a program like American River, uh, there's definitely a passion that's taught there that is not taught other places. And with regards to places like the CIA, the CIA at Hard Park is the best cooking facility in probably the world. The library, the kitchens, the instructors, the facilities are all as about as good as it can get. There's all clad in every kitchen. And, um, you know, but that depends on the student to take full advantage of that. And that's a, a Hyde Park is just a little north of New York City, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Did you want to add anything? Okay. But next question. Uh, I want to say there's a lot of love for these two guys in town. Uh, Sacramento wouldn't be as good as it was if these two weren't here. And who are you? I'm a friend of the chefs. <laughs> you, you, you look a lot like uh, a top chef in Sacramento, I think at a particular arena. I used to be, used to be a chef. And I work for a company called Protus Express, and we do business with these okay. fine gentlemen. One of our good our hype men. Yeah, <laughs> yeah not, not quite. They're the hype men, but a lot of love to these guys. I mean, yeah, a lot of respect. Um, why isn't the Michelin Guide here in Sacramento? Well, uh, let's hope that they do. I think if you had a high concentration of chefs that have worked in Michelin star restaurants, and are able to gain media buzz uh, on a national level, you may actually attract them. But that's not guaranteed. Yeah, and I mean, and we also have to be careful what we wish for. That, that is, uh, with that comes all the things that come with that. I mean, it's, it costs money to maintain those restaurants, and those come with, you know, the higher ticket price items, and we have to have a community that can support that too. Um, because it's not just the food on the plate, it's the staff, it's the host, it's the people calling back to confirm your reservations, it's the people writing down your preferences and making sure that they're available. Um, you know, there's the wine lists and the cocktail programs and all this stuff that, you know, has to be supported by, by the clientele. And so I hope that we are getting to that point. Um, I've seen, I'm very optimistic judging from um, what I've seen at Cannon um, and how people are excited about what the new kind of guard of restaurants in Sacramento is going to be. So I, I hope that that's the case. Um, we, in my opinion, have um, everything kind of geographically that could be associated with having Sacramento added to the San Francisco Michelin Guide. Um, we wouldn't get our own. I mean, there are only three. <laughs> And LA lost theirs, and Vegas lost theirs. And their food is pretty good. And they, yeah, there's chefs doing great things there. So um, I think geographically we have the opportunity to be added, but like Scott said, we have to have a concentration of chefs. And we have to have a concentration of, it's all I don't forget, it's a travel guide, a destination, right? So um, that that's what matters. And I think with the wine country up in the Sierra Foothills, like, and, and even the brewing scene and all of that stuff that goes on here, like we have an opportunity, but it has to be customer supported as well. I have a follow-up question to that too. Um, I think some people have said, is Sacramento ready for 
quote unquote fine dining, like an Alinea or uh, um. I think I looked at Noma, which is this restaurant. I think it's because I think besides Michelin, another guy that at least the industry looks at is like the top 50 restaurants in the world. San Pellegrino. And uh, right, Spain has a lot of the restaurants. El Bulli, which is kind of like Alinea, that molecular gastronomy. I mean, it's, it takes dining to a another level. And we focus on farm to fork, so fresh ingredients and so forth. So... In terms of, I think some people have said Sacramento and Michelin stars, do they go in the same sentence? You know, what's your take on fine dining in Sacramento? Are we, I mean, do we need a Michelin guide? I mean, does that make sense, you know? I don't think it's a priority by any means. Um, I think we could just worry about feeding people good food, you know, and getting away from less chain restaurants and fast food, or traditional fast food restaurants. Um, I think that's a bigger priority, um, but I mean, you know, you can wish for it and you can try and make it happen. Because there's a focus on the ingredients and then in terms of, I guess, technique uh, or plating or, or, or whatever in a Michelin star restaurant in, in Paris or the ones that you worked at. It, I don't know if we have, do we have that in Sacramento or would that fly? It's a specific business model. Yeah, and, and there there are pub, pubs in the English Michelin Guide in the, in the UK that are pubs and they're one star Michelins. There's one-star Michelin food carts in the Hong Kong guide. So it, it doesn't, it, it's, the classifications of the stars are worth a special journey, worth a detour, like it's a travel guide. And so there are things that like, you know, Scott's concept could be a Michelin star concept, but it has to do with the thoughtfulness and the food guide and like all of that stuff, like, is it, is it good enough? And and I think that we're headed in that direction. It's funny about that too, is Ed not being here, worked at uh, Enotria with Pio Bruich, and they were going for it hard, you know, like real hard, advertising the whole nine. And, you know, it's, they just, the guide wasn't coming to Sacramento, it just wasn't. But the food they produced out of there was really cool, you know, and, and Ed got a lot from that and opened up a lot of opportunities for it. He went to Guy Savoy in Las Vegas from there. And Pio went on to do all kinds of other stuff. So, you know, Sacramento didn't support it, though. Not in the way that we would hope that it would. And so if you're talking, like, purely like a molecular gastronomy, like, I want to say gimmicky, because most of their food is just traditional French. It's just creative is all it really is. Um, yeah, ways to go. Next question. So I was uh, born and raised here myself. Did the uh, left coast thing up and down, so moved away as well as you guys working in restaurants up and down. Uh, what's gonna What's it gonna take to keep the momentum going? Because as a midtowner and also running a restaurant in Midtown, we're a real tight community, and you can walk to dozens of places now. Whereas when I was a kid, you could walk to two, and then you take a life in your hands walking under the bridge to Old Sack and anything else. Uh, so what's it gonna take to keep this momentum going? To keep new places like yours, new places like yours opening up. Well, I think uh, first and foremost, uh, the community will support what Brad and I do, hopefully, uh, for years to come. The people that come out of his kitchen and my kitchen, and hopefully kitchens at some point, uh, are trained well enough to be uh, to not leave Sacramento. That have enough, you know, uh, investment in them to keep them here um, and create op more opportunities for people to do that on an economic level. Uh, and I think that would really help. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, you know, it's on our end, it's mentorship. 
um, on y'all's end is is uh, is community support for sure. Um, but th- eventually, we're going to reach a saturation point, and the cream has to be able to rise to the top. And and like Scott's been talking about all night with with fast foods and chain restaurants and things like that, the, you know if this community continues to support stuff like that, then the rest of us are going to be in trouble. Um, and, and there's a whole conversation associated with this that goes with, you know, the increase in minimum wage and, and, and able to be support staff and, and all of that stuff. But, um, you know, we can only put forth the best product that we can put forward. And, you know, we definitely count on the customers to pay those bills. Um, and so if, if we can't, um, you know, we have to support the cream that rises to the top and, and unfortunately there are going to be casualties, um, in, in that and, um, not to saying that people aren't doing a good job, but there are reasons that those things happen. And so when you talk about being a good business owner and you talk about being engaged in the community and doing a good product and, you know, you know, supporting your staff and their future endeavors and all of that stuff matters. Um, so yeah, I mean we we have the, the conversation is just beginning and i i had another follow-up question to that too because uh for the first few food for thought events that we did back in the summer andrea lapore of hot italian uh ian and Nagina kavuchian from south uh chris jarish from uh broderick they all I, 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 there are a few more there was this concern about um obviously the the minimum wage, but workforce training, you know, finding people, good people for the kitchen. And I think also just tying into um, what our next food for thought will be on what's happening in the Central Valley with uh, finding a workforce there and growing crops and relying more on, um, you know, robots or automated machines to grow crops because they can't find uh, workers. Like, from what you're seeing from where you're getting your food to in the kitchen trying to train people, what are your concerns or what are the biggest you know, things that maybe not keep you up at night, but for running a business and maintaining top quality food, what are those things that are big concerns and maybe uh, you have to keep an eye on right now? I Scott. think uh, labor, first and foremost, is huge. Workman's comp, you know, the cost associated with that. Uh, small business owners, you know, tax issues right now is kind of crazy. Um, and, yeah, you know, training people effectively. Uh, I think young cooks, especially in this town, have a very transient uh, experience going on. You know, a restaurant. It seems like yeah. you, too, rotated around a lot. Yeah, we, we, I mean, we've worked all over this town, you know, and I know cooks that have helped me open Perigaries that work, you know, all over town now, and they they jump on new restaurants opening. One, because they're going to get hours. That's big for them. You know, they're going to have a consistent paycheck. There's restaurants, you know, that uh, maybe are still open because, great, they've paid off their lease or they own the land or whatever it is, and they can afford to, you know, just have a staff. You know, they, ha- they can afford that. But when you're trying to pay all of your bills, you know, you have to make everything, every dollar has to count. So for them, if they jeopardize 40 hours a week, they're going to go find that somewhere else. So they're going to jump on the new restaurants like hard. I mean, it's it's crazy. I have these conversations with young cooks all the time. But what that doesn't do is allow the cook to efficiently train underneath somebody for more than a season, maybe two seasons, before the next restaurant opens and it's a different cuisine and they want to learn that. They haven't mastered that by any any means of imagination. You know, they haven't rolled out pasta for 
5,000 people over the course of two months. You know, they've done it for a pasta dish for three weeks, you know, and then they're moving on to garmanger or something like that, or they're moving on to saute. They haven't seen every fish. You know, we cook chicken, steak, and, and salmon in this town, like, ri ridiculously. So they'll probably get that down. But do they know how to, you know, spackock a, a quail or something like that and, and marinate and grill it? You know, like, no, they don't. Because we don't have that eclectic of a food, you know, dining scene right now. So that's going to be huge. We got a huge task in front of us. We got to teach people everything that we've learned in a very, you know, precise and short amount of time. And then every concept we open after that, multiply it times 10. Brad. Yeah, and I, I'm, I wouldn't say that I've given up on the staff that I have. Um, <laughs> where you at, Cannon? Uh, but, um, but I think that there, there's a certain amount of, you know, there's a term that we all use is mise en place. And there's a certain amount of expectation that comes with um, what, what you're realistically gonna get from your employees or realistically gonna get from the talent pool that's around you. And if we know that, I preach this to my students, I preach this to my staff. It's like, if you know what you know, right? You know that you have this person working tonight or you know that you have this team in tonight or you know that staffing's hard or you know that minimum wage is going up or you know that your workman's comp insurance is this much, then you have to plan accordingly to that expectation. And so, you know, from my end on, on the dishes that you see on, on the menu at Canon, we are very prep heavy and we prep as much as we can during the day. And I have two very good cooks that accomplish the, mo the majority of that. Um, and then and as long, uh, in addition to myself and, and Jody um, that do most of that work. And then what we pick up at the end at, at night is, is the flavor has already been built. The recipes are written in grams so that they're very precise. And so I think that at a certain point, chefs um, across the country, it's not just Sacramento, are, 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 are really fine-tuning that component of their business so that it doesn't really matter who's doing the cooking. Um, and then along the way, you find somebody that you can latch onto or someone that latches onto you that you can mentor. And um, from that point, you start to build around that program. We opened Canon we opened a certain way. And now that I've gotten to know my line cooks a little bit better, I can start to build menu items to their strengths and weaknesses. Um, and, and, and thankfully we live in Sacramento where, you know, the produce is as good as it is. And if something changes, then my menu changes. My staff is gone, then I change the menu. Um, make something easier, make something more difficult um, based on, on who's working. All right, next question. Hi. So you all both mentioned that, you know, there are various pros and cons of working at a Michelin star restaurant. What have each of you taken from your experiences there that you're working to incorporate or plan to incorporate in your restaurant? And how does that make it better for us, the diner, um, to experience? Scott? Um, okay. So the first thing that I learned at Alinea was how to multitask on a completely different level than I was used to. Um, some of those tactics I didn't agree with. Uh, for an example, you know, you have 12 cooks uh, in one kitchen and 
I had a dish that had 186 components to it. And 186 components, but it had over like 300 you know, techniques and recipes. So I had to come in in the morning and I had to weigh everything out in precise grams in deli cups. And so I would basically, every single item I had, it was you know, labeled and grouped. So I cut tape for maybe two hours in the morning before I got my cups together and I went up and the door opened at 9 a.m. and I ran in. If I didn't grab that, uh, the, the only single digital scale that we had, it was brutal. Um, but everybody in that kitchen used that digital scale. So I learned how to work together with people. And you know, there's a lot of give and compromise in that, um, but it worked out. I guarantee you I'm gonna have two digital scales going <laughs> forward, you know? Um, <laughs> maybe four. I, I always wanna make sure that like, my cooks have the tools necessary to succeed. That was the one thing I took away from there. And every restaurant that I've opened since, I've fought for that extra bit of money in the budget for kitchen equipment or whatever it may be. Because you need, to be successful, you need the right tools. So that's the one thing. Okay. Um, for me, it's, it's kind of that relentless, um, every service, every guest, every, every plate, every, you know, um, we do what we call a tasting tray before service every day of every piece of mise en place that every cook has on their station. And um, it's just about like that mentality. I preach that to the front of the house staff. I preach it to the back of the house staff. It's that every dish and every service has to f have this intensity that feels like it means something. Um, you know, Super Bowl Sunday's coming up, right? It's a notoriously slow night. Um, we're not open for dinner on Sundays. We're only open for brunch. But it could be a slow brunch. But that intensity of, like, even if we're slow, like, it has to have a feeling of, 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 of that it matters. Um, and I, I didn't have that in every service I had in Sacramento. I only got that working at Soul Bar. Because um, we would do, like... I don't know if any of you have been, ever been to Napa Valley in like February, especially last year during the El Nino when it was pouring down rain. Like we would do like four people at Soul Bar in, in February or January. You know, we do 300 in the summer, but you know, there, there, the, the Napa Valley is very sleepy in the winter. And, um, and the only way to find out when a Michelin inspector came to your restaurant is to read the Michelin guide when it comes out. And, to, to know for sure. Um, and so you never know who's walking in the door. And, and it could be Thomas Keller coming in for dinner to eat fish tacos off the bar menu at Soul Bar. But like we could be doing four covers and it's got to be perfect. If the fish can't be old, the buttermilk can't be old, the tortillas have to be fresh. Like all that stuff matters all the time. And so that's one thing that like I don't even try to ingrain it into my staff. It's just the way that I feel. And that is something that I, I'm, I'm never going to lose. I think to that effect, like standards have to be there. Like you got to set that bar. And that, that's a sign of a really great chef, in, in my opinion, just one of many, you know, attributes. But yeah, being ready for service, like tasting every ingredient, um, got to do it. Thank you. Next question. All right, this question is about stam stamina. I can't say it. Stamina. Stamina. Yeah. 
It's based on a, an experience I had with you, Brad. I've worked in construction. I've biked over mountains. I've hiked up over hills. But that day when I worked with you in the basement of Grange was the most difficult day of work I've ever had. Running from freezers to refrigerators to inside ovens, cutting, uh, the physical, being on my feet, and then to see your kind of mental, you're, you're preparing for two days hence, you've got taking calls from upstairs at that moment, and buying for three days, and four, just the mental, physical, how do you do it? And then, and then how do you do it at a Michelin star restaurant and do it again and again? How do you keep the, how do you keep the pace without cracking? without needing some time off, without, you know, you guys both seem kind of calm tonight, which surprises me. Yeah, what are the mental, because you've got the, the culinary skills down, Pat, but what physical and emotional mental skills do you need to keep it going? Well, you have to love it. That's it's the only way. Um, we do for a living what a lot of you do in your leisure time, right? And so... To do it for that long, I mean, we do really work like 16-hour days. Like this really, as long, you know, it, but that's what it takes. And so, but I, I, I love it. Um, I, I think about it, you know, like he said, he spent on cookbooks what I paid for my first American, uh, associate's degree. And it, like that's you you read and instagram and facebook and you're looking at other people's menus and you're you're constantly um finding inspiration in anything that you do and so uh you you do have to love it just the same way that ultra marathoners love to run and cyclists love to cycle and basketball players love to play basketball like to be a chef you have you know a professional baseball player plays 182 games a year like and they spend the rest of your training for it. Like, that's what it takes. You know, you have to love it. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, I think, uh, it's kind of, well, to that effect, I, I can tell you, like, three Michelin stars, 18 hours a day, you, you look like you're strung out on something, like, at the end of the week. Like, it's bad. I would spend all day on Monday just sleeping, literally. And then all day Tuesday, I'd be riding my bike down Longshore Drive. Um, and I think in Sacramento, specifically, uh, as chefs, you've got to set that example. Like, I've had a lot of good examples for, for chefs, you know, like Kurt Spataro. Like, he's in his kitchen. He may not be in the same kitchen every night, but he'll be in one of his kitchens seven days a week sometimes, you know, for months on end. And I remember when I took over Esquire Grill, like, I didn't have a sous chef. I was the only person. And I worked every single day for probably the first six months I was there. And I loved every minute of it because my standard said, if I'm going to put this standard out to customers, I've got to do that, no matter what. And so if you're willing to, you know, stand behind that, you got to sacrifice whatever you got to make that happen. So you got to be a little bit crazy, but yeah. Next question. What's the short? I'm just going to pull it off. Can you hear me? Yeah, okay. I'll just talk. <laughs> All right, so I've been lucky to travel a lot, and um, I don't know if you guys have any experience with international travel, but the more I travel, the more I appreciate food and 
like when you go to France and London and all these things, you know, do food tours and cooking classes. Have you guys traveled a lot? And what have you learned from your international travel? And just for fun, what's the best thing you ever ate? Okay, well, I haven't done a ton of international, like Canada and Mexico, pretty much. Um, I've been all over the U.S. And I love American food. And I like the little nuances in different regions of America. Um, I don't know what I've taken away as the best thing, but like... Uh, I like a Philly cheesesteak sandwich, honestly, like a legit one, you know, and I love New York style pizza, but I love Chicago deep dish even more, you know, so yeah. Um, yeah, I've done a fair amount of international travel and um, I think that there's a, a certain component of that. I think when I first started traveling, I was like 19, I went to Europe and did the whole backpacking thing, and, um, drank mostly, ate very little. Uh, and then, um, in the trips after that, um, especially traveling with my wife, we've kind of abandoned the whole tourism thing and just gone to eat and really found, um, that that's kind of the best social cultural experience that you can have. I think generally people kind of congregate it at, uh, you know, f in, in food areas, um, no matter where you're at. And so, um, you know, a few years ago, we went to Argentina and South America. Um, this past March, we went to um, Vietnam. Um, and I think that every place you go, you package up a little something to bring home with you. Um, you know, I, I use fish sauce a ton now. I never used it before, right? But I use a ton of it now in things that aren't even even close to Asian, you know, like I'll put it in barbecue sauce or I'll put it in whatever. And it just adds this component. It's just another color that you get to paint with on, on your canvas. And so to find those inspirations in, in any kind of international travel. And if you come home with something like that, it's super worth it. So I have one last question for you both. Um, in terms of Sacramento's food scene and where it is now, what would you like to see added to it? What do you think or and or what? do you want to see go away like what has reached its peak so just uh yeah uh additions subtractions uh improvements on sacramento's food scene long pause scott added to it i would just like um i like more restaurants with business models set for different kind of economic standards, I guess. You know, Different I would, price points. Yeah, I, I, I would love more fine dining restaurants, you know, more options than what we currently have, uh, more mid-range. I want more organic restaurants, more small businesses, rather than just like replicating the same thing. Like, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of a local chain, but uh, like Broderick, like there's a billion of them, you know, and they serve like different communities, so that's great. But we don't need like three of them downtown, you know, like. I personally think like Bernardo's, like we don't need like a million Bernardo's downtown. And I'll argue that like to Randy, like no problem. But you know, the, the communities need that stuff. You know, we have four or five Chipotles in the, the downtown area, you know, we don't need that. You know, we need more bacon and butters in uh, Elk Grove. You know, Roseville, we need a cannon in Rockland. You know, like we need that kind of stuff happening. <laughs> 
still working on eight hours of sleep, bud. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, or we need some sort of new concept by him, you know, to, to be out there um, so people can learn more about food and experience more. Because you go out there, I mean, every shopping mall uh, or whatever unit comes into a neighborhood that's being built, it's, on, it's already pre-sold for the most part by corporations, you know, and leasing agreements. And uh, this, that cookie cutter crap is like so boring. You know, we've had, we grew up on Subway 20 years ago. We don't need it today, as far as I'm concerned, you know. So I'd rather go to Juno's, and I live in East Sac, so like I look at the two and I see the line at Subway, and then I look at Juno's, and I'm like, thank God it's busy over here. So I'd just like to see more of that. Brad. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just really excited to, as a, as a customer, I want more places that I want to eat at, you know, because, and, and albeit I have, probably higher standards than most to the places that I want to go eat at. And, um, you know, I'm excited for the things that are coming down the pipeline that, um, with, you know, the different chefs that have either left their current places and are opening up their new places or the people who have things and are opening up new places. Um, I'm excited for that. Um, I'm also, you know, uh, along with Scott, like I'm, 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 I feel like, you know, to see, Especially down here, I mean, you know, Sacramento, I, I forget because I haven't left the grid since 2014, um, that, that there is a Sacramento metropolitan area that is bigger than a street that has a number or a letter. Um, but to see that stuff, to see that opportunity, like you're right about, you know, bacon and butter, they, they need to be more places like that outside of, of downtown. And, um, you know, there are some people who are making it out in the burbs. Um, Patricio at Nick's Taco kills it. Um, his food is awesome. Um, but in order to get that food, I had to go to the pop-up at Hawks last week. Because um, I don't get out that far very often. So I, I want to see more of that. I want to see that. And I want to see the, the customers supporting that. I mean, you know, every time you walk by the Chipotle on you know 20th and capital and there's a line for lunch like shouldn't there be a line somewhere else i mean there probably should be um and so it just takes it takes some community support too this has been such a great discussion so i want to thank you both brad and scott for being here and thank you audience for coming um and yeah i just what a great night so thank you again You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Food for Thought conversation was held on January 29, 2018 at Clara Center for Performing Arts. Many thanks to our panelists, chefs Brad Checky and Scott Ostrander for being part of this discussion and serving up some great food. Also, a special thanks to John Anderson, president of the Art Institute of California in Sacramento, and his culinary arts team and their students for serving up some great food. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.